Our scripture reading today is Genesis 3, 22 through 4, 16. Our scripture reader is Sarah Payette. In an honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the fir- of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying from me, crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are uh, making our way through the biblical story. And uh, if you've been here for the last couple weeks, uh, we started with just a a Sunday where we actually talked about this book, the book that we refer to as the Bible uh, or the, the Word of God. And uh, said, this is, where, this is where we think the story of the world is found. We think that God in his grace is, has chosen to record for us uh, these, these select stories, these select accounts, these select details uh, that reveals to us the, the, the story that we need to know, that gives to us the information that God says, this is actually, whether you know it or not, like this is what you need. Uh, the next week, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and we and into chapter 2, and we saw creation. And we saw that the original uh, reality was that God, in his, just out of his generous kindness, created a world. And in that world, it was, it, everything was right. God looked at it and said, this is good. And, and one of the things that were, two of the things that we learned there was God's word does something. Like when God speaks, stuff happens. And so there's a, a logical connection there that the people of God, that those who have who've tried to figure out who is this God of heaven, who have read the Bible, have had a very high view of his word. Because right off the bat, we realize that when God speaks, man, something happens. And then we believe that this book is God's word. 
So when God speaks, something happens. It's the first thing. Second thing was that along with this idea that when, when God speaks, something happens, God looked at creation and said, it's good. Meaning that he had an opinion. That God has an evaluation of what is good and what is bad. What is right and what is wrong. So again, right off the bat, God makes this world and he makes everything in it good. It's perfect. It's shalom. Everything works right. Every relationship is right. And we get this hint that he has an opinion, that he has an evaluation of what is right and what is wrong. And so again, it's a helpful connection for us that those who, who follow God, those who want to know who God is and what he's about, quickly realize that he has some standards. He, he actually has a way of life that he says, this is the good way. This is the good life. And, you know, when you read the Bible, that is, that is one of my prayers for you for this congregation is that when we read the Bible, we actually really believe that this is the good life, that what he's laying out here, like I might desire all kinds of different things, but what's, what's displayed on the pages of the Bible, that's actually the good life. And he invites us into it. The next week, we moved on to Genesis chapter 3, just last Sunday. And what we saw is that God's good, perfect creation was, was scarred. It was mangled up. It was broken. It was vandalized by, by sin. That Adam and Eve rejected God instead of believing God and trusting God and what he had said. Instead, they believed a lie. They rebelled against God. And when they did, uh, it, broke, uh, it broke the system. It, it, it brought into the world an infection, a disease, a poison uh, that, has, uh, that has spilled all over uh, the world. Well, as we come now to Genesis, end of Genesis 3 and into Genesis 4, um, what, what I want you to see is, is kind of maybe, maybe you could say the first tangible uh, evidence of the results of Adam and Eve's rebellion. So God told them uh, in, in, in the first half of Genesis chapter 3, God told them that the consequences would be worse than they think. It's almost like God sat down with them and said, guys, however bad you think it is, it's way worse than that. What, whatever you thought the price tag was for rebelling, it's way worse than that. It's infected the system. It's broken the world. It's tarnished it. it it's scarred it. It's bent and broken now. It's damaged. And this, this word separation is a good word to, to associate with what sin did here. You know, the word death, that's what death means. Death means separation. And so God looks at Adam and Eve and he says, your, your actions, like what it's brought into the system is a whole bunch of brokenness, a whole bunch of separation. And so separation from man and God, separation from man and man, from each other, separation from within them, their own selves, separation with creation. So there's a, a spiritual brokenness, a social brokenness, a relational brokenness, a psychological brokenness. As you heard Kevin's story and a lot of Kevin's work over the last 20 years is actually wading into the realities of these very, uh, these very factors. This kind of brokenness, this kind of separation. Sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's psychological. But all of that stuff flows from the brokenness that sin brought in Genesis chapter 3. Well, one of the first tangible consequences is the loss of the garden. So if you were to, we started in chapter 3, verse 22, but if you were to look back in the verses right before that, it's talking. It's God saying, here's what's going to happen. Like, th this is what sin's going to do to my good creation. This is the kind of brokenness that's going to pour into here. 
But when we get to these verses, we actually see it happen. God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, talks among himself. I know that, that doesn't make sense in our, uh, to our brains, but that's what happens. One God, three persons, he has a conversation with himself, and he says we, we, we need to take man out of the garden uh, because there's, there's, there's a tree in there. And if they eat of that tree, they're going to live forever in that condition. And so we're going to take them out of the garden. They're, they're going to lose the garden. And so God, um, you know, if you remember when we walked through the, the days of creation or the stages of creation, on the seventh day, God rested. And we said that there were two kind of two inferences with the Hebrew there. One is that God actually stopped. He stopped working. But the other sense of, that, that Hebrew can have with the word rest is the idea of abiding, like settling in. And one, one scholar said that the question is, Will God and his people rest together? The Hebrew word is nuach. Will they nuach together? Will they abide together? That's, that's the great drama. That's the great question. Well, by the end of chapter 3, the answer is no, they won't. God's removed them from the garden. And see, the loss of the garden means the loss of the temple environment. You know, we, we, a few weeks ago, we spent a little bit of time talking about temple and what is the idea of temple on the pages of the Bible? And the idea of a temple is a place where divine presence and human presence overlap in a unique way, in an intimate way, that it doesn't happen outside of that. So an easy example would be the temple for Jerusalem. The temple for Jerusalem is, is filled with God's presence. So there's something about the temple. There's this unique space in the temple where divine space and human space overlap in a way that they don't outside the temple. Ten steps outside the temple. It doesn't work like that. Inside the temple, there's this overlap of divine and human space. And there is very good reason for us to conclude that the garden was a temple. It was a, it was a space where divine and human space overlapped. God walked with Adam and Eve and talked with Adam and Eve. There was intimacy there and connection there. Now they're outside the garden. They've been put outside the garden. And outside the garden, man, everything is bad. Everything is hard. Everything, it's not that nothing can work. It's just everything's hard. And so instead of when you go to garden or go to plant, everything working out, now it's going to be hard. And so Adam and Eve are put outside the garden. And honestly, we don't have time to get into this, but it's for their own good that God puts them outside of the garden because of the effects of sin on, on their person. So they've lost the most important thing in their life. The, the intimate presence of God. But not all is lost. Because if you were here last week, maybe you remember that in, in chapter 3, verse 15, there's a little whisper that right as God is revealing how bad this is, sin's broken into the world and it's going to contaminate everything, right in the middle of that, in verse three, chapter 3, verse 15, God says the, the, the offspring of Eve is going to crush Satan's head. Satan's going to get his heel, he'll bruise him, he'll, he'll feel it, but he's going to crush Satan, the offspring of Eve. So while Adam and Eve lose the garden, they still have that promise. They still have this promise that the offspring of Eve, Eve's child, is going to crush Satan. So they're outside the garden, and all, they got, all they've got is this promise. Well, really good news. Chapter 4, verse 1. Gets exciting here. 
Chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife. I mean, that part's exciting, I guess. But she, she conceived and bore Cain. Had a, had a kid. Had an offspring. Chapter 3, verse 15 said Eve's offspring is going to crush Satan's head. And now she's got one. Go to verse 2. She bears another. She has a brother. Has, has a, a, her son gets a brother. And she has a second child. So you've got Cain and you've got Abel. The promise. Remember the promise? Here, here you go. The promised offspring of Eve who will crush Satan's head. Eve's got offspring now. Here we go. Showtime. Let's do it. You know, watch out, Satan. God is keeping his promise. Well, look at what happens next. We don't get a ton of details here. We find out that Abel, chapter two, verse 2, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground, so he was a... Uh, more fruits and grains and things like that. Uh, verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So th this could be a rabbit trail that we could go off on, and we're not going to. But the point that I want you to see is that Abel... And Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices. They both bring offerings to the God of heaven. And something is right about Abel's offering, and something is not right about Cain's offering. So Abel brings an acceptable sacrifice. Cain does not. There's a lot we could say about this. If you were to check out the passages in the New Testament that, that refer to this situation, they, they, they conclude that Abel brought his offering in faith. And so it may have just been that simple, that, that, that Abel came to, to, to the God of heaven with a posture of faith, with a recognition that he was in desperate need of the God of heaven to, to, to show grace and mercy upon him, where Cain came not in faith. Cain came, Cain came to earn. Cain came to, to, to prove, to perform. I, we, we, we don't know exactly, but the New Testament does make that distinction, that Abel came in faith. Well, regardless of what the problem with Cain's offering was, he still had every opportunity to respond in a way that honored God, even after the offering, even after he gave this offering that God had no regard for. He, he could have sought the Lord, and he could have said, what, what, what is wrong with my offering? There could have been a, a genuineness to Cain that would come and say, whoa, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize what, what was it about my offering? He could have gone to his brother and said, Abel, what, 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 what did you do that caused this to be received by the Lord? He could have gone to his parents. He, he could have sought out an answer. What is wrong with my offering? I want to offer something to the Lord that is acceptable. What, what did I do? I want, I, want to, I want to change. I want to do this differently. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he actually gets, he gets angry. He gets, he gets really angry. And there's actually an indication here that he's also depressed. In verse 5, it says, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And that's like a Hebrew idiom. Like that, that's, that's indicating there's a level of depression mixed with his anger. That he's super angry, and he's also super distraught. Very, very worked up about what is, what is going on uh, in front of him. 
And there's so much that the Bible has to say about, off, uh, about anger. Anger, You know, it's, uh, there, there is something called righteous anger, where you're angry about the right things, that you should, things you should be angry about. Uh, my experience is that the line between righteous anger and sinful anger is incredibly thin. That you can start off righteously angry about something, and boy, it's amazing how quickly it becomes unrighteous anger. And in the book of James, we are told that anger does not bring about the character that God wants you to have. And so there, there's a you know, sinful anger. There, there's, there's, a, there's a danger here with, with, with anger, and, and uh, Cain is, is caught up in it. But man, look at how God reacts to this. It is it's so amazing to me. God says, he comes to Cain. Cain's hot. Cain's depressed. Cain's self, you know, self-absorbed. He's not asking questions. He's not a learner. He's not expressing any sense of teachability. And yet God says, Cain, I I, I want to help you. If you go out the door like that, you're a sitting duck. Sin is crouching at the door. And if you leave the house like this, you are in massive danger. You are an easy target. Don't leave the house. You're in no condition to go out there. Sin is crouching at the door. It's not going to go well. You see, God, God, God is, is pursuing him. God's trying to get him to understand his own heart. It, it's amazing that even though God is telling him the truth, he, he, says, he looks at Cain and he basically says, look, it's not Abel's fault. It, it's not Abel's fault. That, like, it's not his fault that you're so angry. That, that's not what's going on here. It's your own actions. It's your own attitudes. He says to him, if you did, if you'd brought the right offering, if you did it right, wouldn't it go well? He's like, you're aiming at the wrong guy. You're mad at Abel because Abel brought a good offering, but you should be asking questions about yourself. You see, God's waded into Cain's life. Even while Cain is angry, even while Cain is in some level of rebellion, even when Cain brought the wrong offering, God is pursuing Cain. And then he says to him, sin is going to master you, but I don't want it to master you. I want you to master it. I don't want it to overtake you. I want you to overtake it. Now look, this conversation between God and Cain, don't don't forget this. We just found out a few verses ago that sin has severed the intimacy of God's relationship with humans. And yet here we are. The very next passage, and who hasn't quit on his people? Here's God, consulting Cain, guiding Cain, right after the rebellion that broke the world, the rebellion that brought this intense separation between God and his relationship with man in the garden. And you think, boy, God's just going to write them off. No, not right away, right away, God comes after Cain and says it doesn't have to be this way. There's another road. There's another option. You could take another path. What we're seeing is the grace of God. God doesn't want Cain to perish. God doesn't want Cain to be swept away. He wants him to repent. He wants him to turn from his self-centeredness. He wants him to turn and to trust him again, to to trust the God of heaven. He wants him to turn. But Cain ignores God, just like his parents did in the garden. He gets, he gets direction, he gets guidance, and he chooses to do his own thing. God told, God told Cain, sin's crouching at the door. 
It wants to rule over you, but I want you to rule over it. In other words, sin does not have to win here. And maybe you need to hear that today. Sin does not have to win here. You can make different choices. You can walk a different road. You can have the humility to learn what an acceptable life, what an acceptable offering looks like, what an acceptable heart looks like. But Cain does not listen. He doesn't rule over his sin. Instead, he lets sin rule over him. And he goes out, and with incredible bluntness, it tells us that he kills his brother. It's it's just this point-blank, like this this bluntness. And and several scholars, um, in verse 8, Cain spoke to to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And several scholars identify like that the bluntness, the simplicity of that is like indicating a level of cold-bloodedness. That yeah, yeah, he was hot, angry, super angry, depressed, all that stuff. But it was just like, boom, like just out of nowhere, like he, he, killed, he killed his brother. We saw the grace of God in verses 6 and 7. Cain does not listen. He kills his brother. Now look at verse 10. We, we, we see something else. We see the justice of God. God says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? This is verse 9. Cain responds like a spoiled child. Says, am I, am I a babysitter? Is it my job? And the Lord responds, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me. There are a couple places in the Bible where this language is used. We see it in the, in the Psalms a couple times. We see it in the New Testament a couple times. But this idea that, that innocent blood or innocent uh, blood that's been shed that's innocent is crying to God. You know, God is a God of justice. That means when injustice is done, it cries to God. Uh, at least that, that's the imagery we're given here. That when injustice happens in the world, there's a cry that goes up to God. It's not right. Something is wrong. It's the evidence of the, the brokenness of the world, of, of, of the presence of sin, of the scandal that has happened to God's good creation. And this, this cry, this outcry, rises to the God of heaven. There's an account just a few chapters from here. Genesis chapter 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says to Abraham, he basically says, I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry, because of the cry of the oppressed there, because of the violence, because of the terrible things that are happening there. God says, I hear all that. Can you imagine what it must be like for God to hear something over the course of a minute in our world? All the injustice? All that brokenness, it's hard to imagine. And at the same time, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the God of heaven hears that? He doesn't turn to deaf ear, that he does not care? God can't shrug at that. He can't just let it go. He he, he is a righteous God. He is a just God. And injustice, that, that cry, it's coming to him all the time. Innocent blood cries out to the God of heaven. Wants him to make it right. He just can't turn away from that. So here you have an absolutely just God and an absolutely gracious God at the exact same time, in in the same account. How in the world can a just God save us? Now you might say, I haven't murdered my brother. 
Yeah, you know, okay, that's good. Um, let's keep that track record. Let's not, let's not go there. But if you were to read what God says is a righteous life, we all quickly find out that we have not lived that life, that we have actually violated God's good way, that we have actually rebelled against God's good design. If God is just, and he has to make those things right, how can a just God save us? He wants to save us, but he's just. How will we ever be able to make good on the promise of Genesis 3.15 to save the world, to save people like us? If this kind of rebellion, if this, this kind of uh, uh, disregard for God's design, how's he going to do it? Well, it doesn't look good that he's going to be able to do it. Um, because what you have now, if you read the next few verses, Cain is cursed. God says you're cast out. You're going to be a fugitive. You're going to be a wanderer. You're out. And you know, Cain's response to that is, well, oh my goodness, my, it gets, it's more than I can bear. What? It's still all about Cain. It's still all about Cain. There's no sorrow there. It's all it is is, woe is me. My life just got harder. Yeah, you just killed somebody. That's not what he's worried about. He's worried about the punishments so hard. It just reveals this, this self-centeredness of, of Cain. But think about the situation now. One of Eve's offspring is dead, Abel. The other is forever cursed. What do you think Satan's thinking? Eve's offspring's going to crush me? Yeah, right. Take that. I just crushed them. And in that aspect, Satan is not wrong. One son is dead. One son is forever cursed. You know, so much for Eve's offspring. God had promised that offspring of Eve would crush them. Yeah, right. Satan struck first. Satan took them out before they could get him. He's wiped out Eve's offspring. But wait a minute. The story's not over. If you were to jump ahead later into chapter 4, this was not part of our scripture reading today, but if you get down to verse 25, chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. So Satan, you know, he's doing a victory dance, but God's at work. Eve bears another child. If Genesis 3.15 is this whisper of hope, kind of what we said last week was like the first gospel, it seems to me that Genesis 4.25 is like a second gospel. It's like a second whisper of hope. It's the second time where it's like, oh my word, he's actually going to do it. He's going to keep his promise. God preserves the offspring of Eve. And boy, does this story hint at the promise of a rescuer. Genesis 3.15 says that the offspring of Eve is going to crush Satan. Eve has offspring. Satan crushes them. But then God gives her another offspring. And you immediately begin to realize, wait, oh, this story might not quite unfold like I thought it was going to. This might have a few more twists and turns than I thought it was going to. And off we go. The provision, the provision of Seth keeps the promise alive. And that promise culminates in Jesus. But there's still a really good question. How can Jesus fix this problem? How can Jesus fix this problem of a just God who, who needs to deal with the realities of sin, which both you and I are guilty of? How can Jesus actually solve that problem? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, this, this is what we read. You have come to God, 
the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now you might say, what in the world? What is, what is that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. It is telling us that Jesus is actually the ultimate Abel. Because Jesus is the only person who was truly innocent. Now, Abel did not deserve to be murdered. But Abel was not a perfect, innocent human. There's never been one of those. The only perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was killed, when Jesus Christ's blood was spilt, he was the truly innocent one who spilled his blood. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Abel. See, he didn't just die as a victim of injustice, which Abel did. Jesus died to pay for all of the injustice. The Abel's blood cries out and says something wrong's been done. Jesus' blood comes and covers all the wrongs. It's, he's the greater Abel. That's what the, that's what the book of Hebrews is telling us. Jesus came as a substitute. Jesus came to swap himself out with us. There's a great passage in the New Testament that I think might flesh this out, and we'll try to close with this. But in 1 John chapter 1, there's a pretty famous verse that a lot of Christians have found comfort in, and I think have practiced, tried to practice the teaching of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And it says this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That verse is saying this, that there is a free, open invitation to ask for God's forgiveness for anyone who's trusted Jesus, right? Like that, that's what that verse says. It, it's, it's crystal clear. It's one of the reasons why it is so famous. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us, okay? But what do you think happens? Like if you were to, to, to draw up a movie scene or a scene in a play and you had to, 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 to uh, uh, you know, detail the, the scene when this happens. When, when you practice 1 John 1.9, what, what do you think happens? God is faithful and just if you'll, if you'll confess. What, what do you think happens? Have you ever had to repent of the same sinful action like 10,000 times? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, that, that's a pretty normal experience. And one of the emotions I think that we can, we can kind of have, especially as you get a little bit further down the road of life, is you start to say, man, I, I struggle with that sin in my teens. And now I'm in my 20s. Then you get to your 30s. And you're like, geez, like I am still struggling with that sin. Like I'm still coming back to God and asking for help, asking for forgiveness for that sin again. And then you get into your 40s. And then you get into your 50s. And sometimes these sins just hang around. And you're constantly coming back to God, owning your, your self-righteousness or your pride or your lust or your greed. And, and you're, you're constantly coming back to the God of heaven and bringing this up. Do, do you envision a moment where God will finally say, hey, I am under no obligation to keep doing this. I am under no obligation to be merciful to you indefinitely. Get it together. No more. Sometimes that thought runs through our minds. 
Maybe you can relate to that. You wonder if God's going to keep putting up with you. Will his mercy run out? Well, here's what I want you to notice. 1 John 1.9 does not say, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive you. It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to forgive you. No, it actually says he is faithful and just. What, what does that mean? There, there's, a, there's a pastor from the UK, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor and became a pastor. And this is what he says about 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. This is a paraphrase. He says, if, if Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you, and you have asked God to forgive you because Jesus Christ's blood, God could never, ever, ever condemn you. Because that would be two payments. Jesus paid for it. Now you don't have to pay for it. So God cannot ask for you to sacrifice again. That would be unjust. Therefore, the justice of God now demands that there is no condemnation for you ever. So think about it this way. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones encourages. Jesus is not standing before God the Father saying, here's Matt Heron and he sinned again. So Father, could you give him one more chance? Could, could, could you, you know, please be merciful one more time? To which God, find, you know, his shoulders drop, and he's like, okay, Jesus, because you're a good lawyer, because you make a good case, one more time. No, no, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Jesus is actually saying, Matt Heron sinned again, but I'm not asking for mercy. I'm demanding justice. Embrace him. Cleanse him. Open his eyes. Come into his life. You see, God's justice is now on our side if you believe in Jesus. The, the, the blood of Jesus cries out for justice, but the justice is not against us anymore. It's for us. Jesus is actually standing before the Father in heaven and saying, it wouldn't be just for you to punish Matt. I already took that punishment. It's just for you to not condemn Matt. For you to actually forgive him. And so when John writes that little letter, he says, guess what happens, Christian? When you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you. That's what's going on. It's not God's mercy that might run out. It's actually more legal. He can't do it. Jesus has already paid it on your behalf. And man, if you know that, if you realize that that's how you stand, that's how God sees you, that it would actually be unjust for him to not forgive you. Then it secures you in, your, in, his, in his love for you. You're, you're not going to be seeing life like Cain, where it's all about you and you got to perform or you, gotta, you deserve this. No, no, no. You're going to always be free of that. You're not going to be comparing yourself to other people. You're not going to be angry because somebody else got something that you didn't get. You're going to realize you've got all you could ever dream of. And God gives it to you because Christ has won it for you. Your identity is not based on your performance anymore. That's security. That's how you can actually rest. You know, sin mastered Cain, and sin wants to master you. But this gospel, this good news about Jesus who came in order to rescue us back to God, can actually deal with that destruction of sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. Go learn what that means. You know, we believe at our church, like, it's worth a lifetime of exploring what that means, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness.
That is such good news. And it will change how you live every single day. If you recognize that God sees you like that, because Christ is one for you, what Christ is one for you, it literally changes everything. It's one of the reasons why we come to communion every single Sunday. We want to take the bread and we want to take the cup because we want to remind ourselves that if, if this is what's happened, if Jesus has, has broken his body and spilled his blood on my behalf, then now the justice of God isn't against me, it's for me. This is good news. If you've run to Christ, we invite you to come to the table to come break the bread and drink the cup. If you have not trusted Christ, then don't come get the elements. Stay in your seat and receive Christ. There's a couple prayers in your bulletin that we, we offer as just language, just as some, as some assistance to try to think about a conversation that maybe you should have with the God of heaven. And we invite you into that. Our practice here is to come, come down the middle aisles, come to the table, get your, get your uh, elements, and then head back to your seat. Uh, you can come when your row stands up, or you can come whenever you want. A couple minutes of music, and then a song uh, to close us out. And so if, if, you're, if you're one who's trusted Christ, man, run up here and get the bread. And if you're one who is not, we invite you to receive him today. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible uh, story of uh, these two brothers. So tragic. The first murder. Another one, another human being rebelling against you, taking your counsel and rejecting it. Evidence of the brokenness of sin, evidence of the brokenness of the world, evidence of the, 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 the poison. And yet, in the middle of all this, we see these signposts, we see these hints. And in this passage, it's, it's, it's almost as simple as Eve having another kid. That the line is not gone, that the seed is not gone, that the offspring is not gone, that you could actually keep your promise. God, we thank you that that promise culminates in the person and work of Jesus, that he's actually even better than Abel, the one whose blood turns your justice for us. God, we thank you that that's ours by faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.